Uh, for some reason, just over the last month or so, people have felt this need to send me old photographs. I think, um, I don't know, I turned 44 when we were on holidays. My wife also had a significant birthday with a four in it. Uh, I don't want to say what it is. Um, but uh, but uh, just recently, just people seem to keep sending me old photographs. If you, if you put the first one up there, Mal. Uh, yeah, that is P1 in Millington. Uh, look at that handsome young chap in the middle there, eh? Uh, don't know what that hurt. That was a bowl, I think, right there. Went around my head. But, uh, and then uh, somebody else sent me this one. In fact, the person who sent me it sitting down there. I mean, I couldn't straighten a tie if I tried. Look at every, every photograph of me in Portadown College. My shirt's hanging out and my tie's crooked. Now, if you look just to my, if, if you, as you're looking at it, if you look to my left, Simon Clyde sitting down there. And the last one on the right at the bottom is actually Christine McElwain's sister, who's down helping with Hope, uh, Christine's down helping with Hope Kids. Uh, that's Mark Dundas at the back. Some of us know him. Uh, he's one of the guys we deal with in Turkingtons, who, who, who own this building. So, uh, and the others, I'm not completely sure who most of them are. But uh, no, I, I know some of them. Actually, Caroline on the far right at the top goes to the vineyard up at the Causeway Coast. Um, but uh, it's just, people keep sending me. And then uh, just this one came up on Facebook in June. Yeah, I know, I know. That was my my ordination. Obviously, the last time I wore a collar. Um, I know I'm like a wee boy. That's what it looked like before I arrived here. Um, that was a uh, 2006. That was 13 years ago. Look how fresh faced that boy is. Eh? 30 years old and full of dreams and hopes for the future in the church. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, in one sense, I was thinking, you know, we're, I'm different. I mean, I'm obviously different, um, and yet we're the same. You know, as you look at old photographs, you can see that you've changed, you've grown, you've developed, you've got older, you've got more grey, and yet the core of you is still the same. The heart of you is still the same. Um, I'm not the only one who saw an old photograph this week. There's one more actually. I want to show you. <laughs> Norman and Valerie. Where's Valerie? She's out, is she? Yeah. Oh, she's ran out. Oh, no, she's down at the back there. She had a, that's a bad sign, isn't it? Uh, that's a bad sign. Celebrate. Look at... Norman looks about 14, doesn't he? I mean, Valerie looks young too, but I mean, Norman, I was like, is that actually Norman? Um, how he saw her through that hair, I have no idea. You know, maybe... Uh, I don't know, but they're actually celebrating not 50 years of marriage, but 50 years since their first date very soon. So that's, that's tremendous. But uh, how have you grown through the years? Not just in, in your physical appearance, but how have you grown? How have you developed? You know, change is the only thing we can be sure of. Change is the only thing that is absolutely going to happen no matter what. Um, you know, in 10 years, you look different. In 20 years, you look different. In 40 years, some of you look very different. Um, just think about that. Uh, but, uh, but, but who will you have become in five years, in 10 years? Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming now? You know, I look back at those photographs and I, I, I start to trace just, just who, what God has done. And, 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 and here's the thing that, that our daily decisions put us in a direction which leads to a destination. That life is just decisions. And decisions are big and decisions are small, but we don't realize that our daily decisions lead us to where we are today. 
you can't drive south and end up at the north coast. And yet sometimes in our Christian lives, we think we can make whatever decisions and sure God will sort it all out anyway. God is not responsible for you reaching your potential. God is not responsible for you reaching your potential. God sees your potential, and we're going to see that he calls that out of you, but it's up to you to make the daily decisions to get there. It's up to you to make the daily choices to get to where God wants you to be. As I said last week, there's no escalators or elevators in God's kingdom. There's only steps. It's one step at a time, one step of faithfulness, one step of obedience at a time. And we're going to continue to see that as we uh, travel quite quickly through the life of David and uh, this young man, this young shepherd boy who was given this promise from God. God had clearly spoken to him through the prophet Samuel, you will be king. The only problem was there was already a guy called Saul who was king and was very reluctant to give up the throne. But David was anointed by the prophet Samuel in front of his brothers and his dad and said, you will be king. Now, if that had been me, I would have been down to crowns or us the next day, okay? And I would have got a nice shiny crown for my head. And then the next day I'd have went to thrones or us and I'd have got a nice throne because I would have been expecting a few days, maybe a few weeks later, this great prophet has prophesied over me, I'm going to be king. This is going to happen anytime soon. When actually what we discover, we're not sure exactly how long, but it was probably around 15 years between the promise and the palace. There was 15 years between what God spoke and what David actually saw. Because between the promise and the palace, there's always a process. Between the promise and the palace, God always takes us through a process. There was a process of God getting David ready to be king. God needed to mature him. God needed to mold him, to shape him, to prepare him, to develop him, to, to put character into his life, to turn him into someone who could lead a nation. And that would take as long as it would take. And there's always preparation. And the greater the, the calling in one sense, the, the deeper and longer the preparation. Like if you're going to be a, a postman, and I've been a postman at one point in my life. You don't need a ton of training. If you're going to be a heart surgeon, a little bit more is probably helpful. And so the more, uh, the more your life is going to impact and the, more, uh, the, the deeper the calling, the more preparation that actually takes. It's like the higher you build a building, the deeper you need the foundations. There's always a process. But we don't like the process. Because we live in an instant world. We live in a microwave world. We live in a Netflix world where we don't even have to watch the ads anymore. We just click and it's on. We live in the high-speed internet world. And the problem is even in churches like ours, particularly, particularly in churches like ours, I think, charismatic, Pentecostal, whatever you want to call them, my fear about churches like ours is sometimes we get so focused on the event. We think if we can just get one special prayer one special prophecy, if we can just go to that one special conference, then years of process can be eliminated and we will go from glory to glory to glory. And I believe in prayer and I believe in the prophetic and I believe in all of that stuff and I've, I've had things shift in my life through prophecy, but more often than not, that's part of a process. That's part of a process that God takes us through as he matures and develops us into the people 
He wants us to be. And that requires our cooperation. And it takes time. And it takes obedience. And it takes faith. And it takes patience. And it takes that horrible word, perseverance. David had a prophetic word. He had the spiritual event when he was anointed by Samuel. And yet, he had to go through the process. And so what, what I really want to do today is show how God gets us ready. Show that when God calls us to something, whatever that is in life, whatever that is, when God calls us to something, he starts to get us ready. You see, David had a prophetic word from Samuel. You're going to be king. That word was true, but it wasn't the whole picture. It was a true word, but it wasn't the whole picture. And often God gives us prophetic words. He gives us dreams. He gives us visions. He gives us pictures of our future. He gives us an outline, maybe part of a picture, a sense, a feeling of what the future will look like. But we rarely get the whole thing up front. Look at what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. One translation puts it, our knowledge is incomplete and our ability to speak what God has revealed is incomplete. So God does speak to us about our future in various ways. And I love it when he does that. But he doesn't give us the whole picture up front. See, David was told about the promotion. David was told about the kingship. But notice there's no mention of Goliath. Samuel never mentioned Goliath. Samuel never mentioned Saul throwing spears at him. Samuel never mentioned him losing his wife and his best friend. Samuel never mentioned the cave and the wilderness. Samuel never mentioned the deserts. Samuel never mentioned all the things that David would go through over the next 15 years. And it's probably just as well. It's like, it's like he got the end of the movie, but he missed the whole middle bit. And it's probably just as well. Because if God were to give us the whole picture up front, I think it's more than we could take. And we would probably run a mile. When God gives you a prophetic word, when he gives you a picture, when he gives you a vision, it's like he goes into the future and says, this is your potential. This is who you can be. Now, will you cooperate with me to help you get there? It's not all us and it's not all God. It's as we take daily steps of obedience that God gets us there. You know, that, that, one, that middle photograph, the second photograph of me when I was in Portadown College was when I was about 17. And I'd been a Christian at that stage for just two, three years. And during those two, three years, I'd gotten a lot of prophetic words. About 10 different people prophesied about leadership and going into the ministry and, and all of those things. And so, by, you know, I had all these prophetic words. So by, by my mid-twenties, I thought I would be the next Billy Graham or, or Benny Hinn, you know, because he gets to wear white suits and has more money. Uh, and I thought I'd be doing these huge evangelistic crusades. And I've shared this with some of you before. By, by my mid-twenties, uh, was I preaching to the nations? Was I filling stadiums? You know, was I, was I, was I, you know, just doing great things? Uh, you know, uh, and the platforms? No, I was selling pump dispensers, like you know the wee things that the soap comes out off in the bathroom. I was selling those, and uh, not door to door. Um, but I was working for a company in Molusk called Canyon that did the little trigger sprays on your sprays, and they wanted to diversify their market, so I, I did. The pump dispenser. Uh, I was the pump dispenser manager. And, uh, uh, and, and to be honest with you, that wasn't my dream job. Like, you know, 
when you're in lower sixth and they bring you into the careers office and say, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to sell pump dispensers. That wasn't, that wasn't my dream, okay? And to be honest, it really wasn't a very nice environment to work in. It was a Japanese company and we all sat in one room and the, 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 the managing director didn't speak a word of English so he just swore in Japanese all day at us all. And the, he, it was quite funny because his translator... Only knew his translator was from here and only knew Japanese because he had been a missionary in Japan. So he's trying to translate all this Japanese swearing by not swearing. And uh, uh, you know, Mr. Okamura is not happy right now. And uh, uh, but it was not a pleasant environment. Um, and yet, in the midst of that, God used me. Uh, by the end of the, one year, I'd sold 20 million of those little pump dispensers and brought the company a million and a half pounds. It was quite funny. So I think, I don't know if I've said this. I, I forget what I've told you last week. Um, but when we were trying to figure out, I mean, where do you start? You go to Boots, you go to Mr. Boots and say, do you need a pump dispenser? And so my boss is looking down a list and he goes, you're a Christian. There's a guy called Simon Baptist in Chester. Go see him. And I went to see him and he became my first customer. And, uh, but, but in the midst of that, God used me. God was at work and he taught me and he developed me. He taught me how to relate to people who I don't particularly like. People who are nasty. People who are cursing in Japanese at me. He taught me how to endure an environment that wasn't that pleasant. I spent a week and month in England on my own traveling around. He taught me about who I was when nobody was looking. Who you are when you're in a hotel room at 10 o'clock at night and it's just you. He taught me through when I was at trade shows and all the men were going to gentlemen's clubs in the evening and trying to pressure me to go. And there was a huge pressure just to go along with the lads and do this stuff. And, and yet I remember at the time thinking, if Jesus comes back, is that really where I want to be? And, and by God's grace, I, I didn't give in to that pressure. But he developed things in me in that place. And he taught me this that God's favor can follow you into places that you'd rather not be. See, it's easy to be here today and to worship God. and to give him, you know, What about in your work tomorrow, when you've got that person who, every time they walk into your room, your hand goes like this. What about that neighbor who gives you the most condescending looks what about that person in your family who just gets on your last nerve? You know? What about that, that situation where, where you just are, are, just, are just struggling to get through each day? What about that place where you just don't want to be? Because most of us don't spend time in our first choice world. A lot of time spent in our second choice world or our third choice world. Let's be honest. A lot of time is spent in places and situations that we would choose not to be in. And yet, it's in those places very often that God works in our lives. And we see that again and again through the life of David. In the least hospitable circumstances, in the least comfortable places, God was at work. You see, everyone talks about David and Goliath. We all know the story. Okay? How the little guy with a sling knocked down the big bad giant and cut off his head. And as incredible as that was, I think that was actually the easiest part of the whole process for David. Why? Because it was a one-round knockout. 
David shows up at the battle, hears this big oaf shouting abuse, says, I'll take him on, takes out his sling, knocks him down, cuts off his head, everybody cheers, and they come back singing songs about him. That is it. Like that, that didn't take very long. That took about an hour of faith, okay? And suddenly he's a hero. That took an hour of courage and character. But living as a fugitive in the wilderness in caves for 10 years with a crazy demon-possessed king who's got one mission and that is to hunt him down like an animal, that took real character. That took real courage. That took something inside David that he didn't know he had. Let me ask you, what do the following have in common? We'll see who the music fans are here. Aha, take on me. Dexie's Midnight Runners, come on Eileen. Soft sell, tainted love. Los Dias Rio, the Macarena. Chumba Wumba, tub thumping. Ice, ice baby, vanilla ice. What do they have in common? They're rubbish. <laughs> Danny, I'm surprised you even know what half of those even are. One hit wonders, Mal. That is exactly right. They were all one hit wonders. For a few weeks or a few months, everybody was singing the songs. The bands were on all the TV channels on top of the pops back then. Uh, and where everybody mimed. And, uh, and then you never heard of them again. You kept waiting for their next big hit. And it never came. You know, David killing Goliath could have been a one hit wonder. It could have been, he comes along, he kills Goliath, everybody cheers and we never hear of him again. A one-hit wonder, get it? Um, But 3,000 years later, here we are in Ireland studying his life. Apart from Jesus, there's more written about David than anyone else in Scripture. In fact, Jesus described himself as a son of David. Why? Because David was willing to allow God to develop him. He was willing to go through the process. He was willing to allow God to shape him and form him into who he needed to be. Saul had shot the fame overnight and it hadn't gone well for him. So God wasn't going to make the same mistake again. God was going to take as long as it takes. You can have all the gifts in the world, but the gifts come free. That's why they're called gifts. God gives us gifts. He gives us gifts that we're born with, things that we're naturally good at. And he gives us gifts as we are Christians. He gives us spiritual gifts. They're gifts. You didn't earn them. You didn't deserve them. God gives gives them to you. Character. You work for that. Character, that's formed. Character, that's a part of a process. Character and integrity and those things that actually sustain you in the place where God brings you are the things that actually take time. Because the worst thing that can happen is that God brings you to a place but your character isn't strong enough to keep you there and we're more focused on the destination we're more focused on where we want to be we're more focused on what you know the 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 place the promise and god is focused on the gap in between the process so where did god develop david's life during this season of preparation three places really quickly he developed endurance in david's life he developed endurance i feel like i'm showing my age today remember the film the fugitive Harrison Ford plays Dr. Richard Kimball. His wife uh, is murdered and he is unjustly accused and he goes on the run and he's hunted down by Tommy Lee Jones. Well, for 10 years, David's a fugitive and he's been hunted by the king. And when you're a fugitive on the run, there's not a lot of places you can go. You can't go to the cities. You can't go to the populated places because you'll be found or somebody will grass on you. Somebody will tell the king where you are. 
So you have to go to the wilderness places. You have to go to the barren places. You have to go to the isolated places. You have to go to the places where nobody else wants to go. And you've got to keep on moving. And that's what we see in David's life over the next 10 years. Here's just a few verses real quickly. David left Gath and went to the cave. We saw that last week. He left his men and they kept moving from place to place. They stayed in the wilderness strongholds. They stayed in the desert. David is in the desert. They're far back in the cave. They moved down to the desert. They were in the wilderness. In the next chapter, in the wilderness. Those three words again and again, wilderness, desert, and cave. That's where David spent 10 years. Doesn't sound much like kingship to me. See, I like comfort and I like convenience. I think you probably do too. I like nice things. I like peace and quiet. And everything going just how I planned. I like things nice and tidy. But there's some lessons that we can only learn in adversity. There's some lessons that we can only learn as we go through the difficult and barren places. There's some character traits that we only develop as we face opposition and obstacles and setbacks and even personal attacks. And there's a depth that comes through struggle that doesn't come through success. And every person here will find themselves in a wilderness at some stage. Every person here will find themselves in a desert or a cave, a dry place, a barren place, a place where you feel like there's no life, a place where you feel like everyone's abandoned you, a place where you feel like you just are so unsettled, a lonely place, a place where God seems so distant, where you're praying and it feels like your prayers are going no higher than the ceiling and there's no response. All of us find ourselves there. All of us find ourselves there at some stage. Everything we find security in is stripped away from us. And you're asking yourself, God, why are you allowing this to happen? What's wrong with me? Have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten about me? What had David done wrong? Absolutely nothing. He was exactly where God needed him to be. And as you go through the Bible, we see that God often sends his people into the wilderness to prepare them. He sent Moses into the wilderness for 40 years to prepare him to lead the people out of Israel. He sent the Israelites into the desert for 40 years to prepare them for the promised land. And Jesus even spent 40 days in the wilderness before he began his ministry. Because God has a work to do in our lives that can only happen in the wilderness, in the desert in the cave there's a depth that God wants to put in us a maturity he wants to develop in us an integrity and a character that he wants to build into our lives that can only happen in the wilderness so David endured difficult surroundings that was the first thing that that God developed in him the ability to endure difficulty and I wonder if that's where God's developing you right now are your surroundings less than ideal Maybe you're in a job you hate, difficult relationship. Maybe you're facing personal attacks. Maybe you've got your own personal soul. I've discovered that at, most, at some stage of our lives, most of us will have a soul. What I mean by that, we'll have somebody who just doesn't like us. We'll have done them no harm. We'll have only tried to do good to them, but for some reason, they just don't like us. They're out to get us. They try to undermine us. They gossip about us. They, 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 in work, they, they try to, to demean us and undermine us and, 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 and make life hard for us. Uh, and we, there's just people sometimes, all you have to do is breathe to offend them. All you have to do is exist. And, and you just know that they don't like you. 
They're not, just, some people are just nasty. And you know, the temptation with people like that is to give them the right hand of fellowship to the face and, and, and to, to strike back and to treat them how you, they treat you and to get revenge when there's opportunity and to gossip about them and to get people on your side and to, 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 to show everybody else that they're wrong and you're right. That's our normal human nature to the souls in our life. But when we respond like that, we become just like them. When we treat them the same way as they treat us, we become just like them. And what I love about David is he didn't allow this to happen. He didn't seek revenge. And we're going to see that in a minute. But he trusted God. And the second thing is this. He learned to depend on God's voice. He learned to depend on God's voice. Don't watch it anymore, but I used to love the voice. The TV show. Used to love the voice. And the thing about the voice was this, that the judges can't see the person singing. They can only respond to what they hear. They turn in response to the sound. They make decisions because of the voice. And that's what we see in the life of David. He responds to the voice. He turns because of the voice. A few verses from 1 Samuel 23, just from one chapter alone. When David was told, look, the Philistines are coming against Keilah and looting the threshing force, he inquired of the Lord and said, shall I go and attack? He talked to God. He said, God, should I go and do this? Verse 4, once again, David inquired of the Lord. Verses 9 to 13, when David learned that Saul was plotting against him, David said, Lord God of Israel, will this happen? And the Lord said, well, David asked, will this happen? Do you see that? David asked God's qu- God questions and God answered him. And as God answered him, he made his moves. David didn't just go his own way, do his own thing, live by his own wisdom or ingenuity or experience. He listened to God and he obeyed God and he did whatever God said. And he didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't try to do things his own way. He didn't do shortcuts because he had an opportunity to speed this whole thing up. Twice, when he's on the run, he has the opportunity to kill Saul. He has the opportunity to speed the whole thing up, to fast track it, and yet he chooses not to. Look at chapter 24. This is quite an amusing story. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. So Saul's pursuing David. Saul comes to the sheep pens. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That's all we need to hear from Scripture, isn't it? You know, I love the way the Bible is so honest. Saul had to do a number one or number two. We don't know. David and his men are far back. So Saul goes into the cave, says, lads, stay out here. I'm going in to take care of my business. He's in there. He's squatting, doing whatever he's doing. And he doesn't realize that Saul and all the soldiers under, or David and all his men are back there in the cave. I mean, the last thing you want is, anyway, uh, and, and they're all there, and they're saying, David, this is your chance. This is your big opportunity. Kill him now. Nobody will ever know. Just get rid of him. In fact, they even spiritualize it. They say, this is God's will. I mean, God has brought him out of all the caves he could have went in to do a wee. Like, like he came into your cave. Like, God is, and David looks and goes, no, I can't do that. Because even though he's against me, he's still the Lord's anointed. He still, he still has the position of authority. I mightn't like him. He may be making hell, life hell for me. But I cannot shortcut what God has promised. I have to trust God's timing. And he doesn't take revenge. 
You know, when you have the chance to take revenge against someone who has done you harm, that says a lot about you if you don't do it. When you treat people well who have mistreated you, that is hard. Because everything within us wants to treat them the way they treat us. But David recognizes that if this is going to happen, it's going to be God. And he's not in competition with Saul. The only person who can stop David from being king is David. Because when God has given you a promise over your life, the only person who can stop you getting there is you. You're not in competition with anyone. The only person you need to worry about is you and your heart. And David is a heart after God. And he trusts God's timing. And you know what? An awful lot of life is just about timing. You can do the right thing at the wrong time and wonder why it doesn't work. And a lot of it is just about trusting God's timing. There's so many things in life that as, I, as, as very often as you look back, you go, if I, if I had just made a different decision there, my life would look completely different. But I, and I could have sped things up or I could have changed things, but, but I wouldn't be where I am now, whether you like it or not. But a lot of it is just about the decisions you make and trusting God's timing. And if God has something for you, then it's for you. And only you can stop it. And if God doesn't have it for you, then you really don't want it anyway. Trust God's timing. And finally, he learned to lean fully on God's strength. He learned to lean fully on God's strength. One of the very darkest and lowest places of David's life happens just before he becomes king. And that's often the way it is. Sometimes before the greatest things happen in our lives, we go through the toughest tests. He has moved with his, he's now got 600 guys last week, he had 400. He's moved with 600 men and their wives and their children to a place called Ziklag. It's actually in Philistine territory. And they're actually the most settled they've been in 10 years. They've been moving from place to place, but eventually they get their own city. And so they're settled, they're stable, and things are going quite well for them. And one day, David leads his men out on a battle. They come back, and as they're walking back towards Ziklag, as in the horizon, they see black smoke coming from the city. Can you imagine? You're walking back home, and you see black smoke coming from your house. And so their walk becomes a run. And they run in, and the place is devastated. The place is burnt to the ground. The Amalekites, one of their enemies, have come in and they've, they've basically burnt the place to the ground and taken their wives and taken their children. But like we see sometimes in places like Nigeria where they, they take the schoolgirls and Boko Haram and, and they've taken their wives and they've kidnapped them and taken them away. And the people are absolutely devastated. Look at what it says. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons, or their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. These big, brave men just sob inconsolably. They pour their hearts out. But then their tears turn to bitterness and anger, and they start to blame David. Look at verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking about stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. These men who David had taken... These men who were in debt and in distress and discontent. And David had taken them in and trained them and loved them and protected them and looked after them and developed them. They're now turning on him. 
They're now talking about stoning him to death. Even as he's dealing with his own loss and his own grief because he's lost his wife and son. But here's the key verse. When everyone else turned against him, when he's all alone, when his world has fallen apart, what does David do? Verse 6, David found strength in the Lord his God. Other translations say he strengthened himself in the Lord. When his world falls apart and when everybody else leaves him and when his friends turn against him, that he's nowhere else to turn, he finds strength in God. He draws deep into his history with God and is refreshed and renewed and replenished and revived. And I think he could only do this because as a shepherd boy he had learned to do this. When he was alone on the hillside with his sheep he had learned that when there's nobody else around there's just God. And he drew on his history with God and he had developed a depth of relationship that he had learned to depend on God alone. You see it's easy to sing worship songs in an environment like this where we're all singing them together and life is generally pretty good but what happens when your world falls apart what happens when people you trusted turn on you betray you let you down what do you do in a season where there's lack and loss that's when we figure out what's inside us see what you do in your lowest moment says more about you than what you do in your highest moment what you do in your greatest place of failure or opposition or attacks is much more about, what you, about you than what you do when you're successful and everybody thinks you're great. And it's great to have others around us to strengthen us. And that's why we come to church. We want to have others around us to strengthen us, encourage us, and call just all that God has put within us out. That's, that's great. But there comes a time when you're alone. There comes a time when it's just you and God. There comes a time when everybody that you thought you could depend on isn't around. And it's what you do in those times that really reveals how deep that relationship with God is. David was a wounded worshipper, but he was still a worshipper. And he refuses to believe that this is the way it's going to end. He refuses to lie down and lick his wounds. He refuses to give in to discouragement. He refuses to allow his heart to be filled with despair. And those moments are so crucial in determining and defining our future. Because when we allow discouragement and disappointment into our hearts, and when we allow discouragement and disappointment to take root, our lives start to go in a different direction. Our lives should not be defined by discouragement and disappointment. Our lives should not be defined by pain. Our lives should not be defined by what others have done to us. Our lives should not be defined by what happened when we were 10 years old. Our lives should not be defined by by opposition or, or adversity. Our lives are defined by the voice of God. And David turns to God in the midst of the darkest moment. Look at verses 18 to 20. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. I'm not going to get into that. That's descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else was taken. They'd taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock. This is David's plunder. Through finding strength in God, he was able to lead the people to recover not only what they'd lost, but even more. 
He had a promise from God. You're going to be king. And he's not going to give up now. And I think this was, within two chapters, David is anointed king. I think this was the final test. That God needed to put him through just to see if he was ready. This was the final test where God said, right, I can now make you king. And in 1 Samuel 2, he becomes king of Judah, first of all, because Israel had split into two um, kingdoms at that stage. There was Judah, but then there were the other 11 tribes. And about a year and a half later, he becomes king of them as well. And he didn't settle just to be king of Judah. He could have said, well, I'm king anyway of Judah. He wanted everything that God had. If God had promised him all Israel, he wasn't going to settle until he got it all. He wasn't going to settle for partial fulfillment. He goes after everything God has promised him. And I had a totally different ending to this morning, but as I prepared, or to this message, but as I prepared this morning, here's where I sensed God wanted me to finish. I felt like he wanted to ask you this. Is there something that God had promised you? Is there a dream that you had in your heart, but disappointment has robbed it from you? Was there something that God gave you a glimpse of for your future, but discouragement came and beat you down, and now you've settled for less? Or you've settled for a part of what God promised when deep down you know there's more? Maybe pain has worn you down. Maybe betrayal has made you bitter. Maybe some loss happened in your life and you never fully recovered. Who were you before you allowed discouragement and disappointment to take those things from you? Because the truth is, we can blame other people and we can point to circumstances that may have been especially painful or difficult, but we have to take responsibility for what we allow to take root in our hearts. The Bible says, guard your heart. In other words, you have responsibility for what you allow to take root in your heart. And today I think God would challenge us not to give up. Just because we haven't seen it yet, just because we have had disappointments and discouragements, just because it's been so long and we're so weary and we're so tired of waiting and we're, we just want to give up, God would say, just, just keep going. Discouragement will come. Pain will come. People will disappoint you. The church will fail you. Leaders will let you down. Life will knock the stuffing out of you at times. But it's up to you and it's up to me whether we allow those things to shape us and define us and to determine our future. I was reading a book recently about Mount Everest and on Mount Everest 8,000 metres up, there's an area which is called the death zone. In the death zone, apparently, there's frozen bodies lying around of people who, because of the freezing temperatures and the thinness of the air, climbers have died up there and they're just left there. And the article I was reading asked this question, why do people die when even, even when there's over 4,000 4, people who have got to the top and survived Everest? Why do these people die at the death zone? And you know what the answer was? They sat down and gave up. That was it. It became so difficult, the climb became so hard, that rather than keep going, they just sat down and died. 
and froze to death. And a huge part of the Christian life is simply this. Just keep going. Don't give up. Life will get hard. Life will be painful. Things will happen. Darkness will descend. But keep climbing. Keep moving forward. Don't stop. Don't give up. Because the one promise God gives in the Bible is this. I will be with you. And whatever you're facing today, I want to say to you, he is with you. He loves you and he will bring you through this. This too shall pass.